Straight Talk from Israel. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. And now, here is Walter Bingham. Hello and welcome to another Walter Bingham file. It might be a new year in the Gregorian calendar, but the old problems are still with us. Another variant of COVID-19 is rampant. Iran is continuing its attempt to frighten Israel into submission. China is threatening to retake Taiwan and Russia is trying to destabilize Eastern Europe and the Balkans in an attempt to re-establish its former Soviet empire. Just a few days ago, Soviet troops have crossed another international border, this time into Kazakhstan, purportedly at the request of President Tokayev, to help quell the uprising in that country. Knowing Putin, he will have no intention to withdraw them when that country is back to normal. And in Israel, the government continues to bow to the demands of its Arab coalition partner. It's January the 11th, 2022, and in the Hebrew calendar, we count the 9th of Shvat, 5782. I am Walter Bingham and furious at Merit's minister Yair Golan, who, if he had just an ounce of character, would immediately resign for having brought across his lips words that sent six million of our people into the gas chambers. I fought for four long years in the British Army during World War II against pigs who referred to Jews, as he did, as subhuman, untermenschen, risking my life on numerous occasions. Now I have once more to endure such insult from this creature that there is no suitable adjective to describe him, against my Jewish brothers and sisters. He must immediately be brought before the appropriate Knesset committee and dismissed as an MK for gross misconduct and then indicted for crimes against the Jewish people. How can he dare to be a legislator with such thoughts? I cannot call him a subhuman, but in my personal opinion, this hireling, this Servant of the enemy is not worthy to walk among us. How did a nice Jewish girl from Delaware end up living in Israel? Shalom, I'm Natalie Sapinski. Join me on my show, Returning Home. Meet different people who have moved to Israel. Hear their personal stories, their highs, their lows, and everything in between. Each week, we talk to experts on immigration and the process of moving to Israel. Listen to Returning Home every Thursday, only on Israel News Talk Radio. And now, here is Walter Bingham. Now to the rest of the program. Because every week we gain new listeners, I'm today repeating a historic interview by my former colleague, Rabbi Tovia Singer, 
with a Mossad agent who actually led the capture of Adolf Eichmann, the architect of the Holocaust, in Buenos Aires, Argentina, and managed to clandestinely fly him out of Israel to stand trial. You won't want to miss this real-life thriller. Also in the program, a report criticizing Israel's practice of responding after the event, of being reactive instead of proactive. But I begin with a review of a book, the contents of which every Jew and lover of Israel can be proud. It includes an interview with the author. Any mention of Israel in the world outside will immediately evoke thoughts of armed conflict, of soldiers harassing Palestinian Arabs at numerous checkpoints, and of course of the poor people of Gaza who are thought to suffer deprivation of every kind because of Israel's actions. That is the perception, the sum total of information about our country perpetuated by the international media. I cannot here enter into detailed refutation, save to say that Israeli Arabs enjoy a far higher standard of living than those in the countries of our neighbors. And as for Gaza, it is Hamas that initiates hostile action which causes Israel to defend her borders. The Hamas war machine drains Gaza's resources and deprives their population of necessities. But today I want to talk about the real Israel, the Israel that provides innovations from which the whole world benefits. Social action programs, charitable giving, acts of kindness, in other words, the improvement of society. Israel stands at the forefront of that noble task, not just by nice words, but by action with an incredible record of innovations. In domestic politics, it seems that our present government is staffed by ministers who don't act in the best interests of our nation. Last week, Defence Minister Gantz acted like a schwanz, Yiddish for subordinate. His naivety turned him egg on his face. Did he really believe that inviting this Holocaust denier and terror paymaster Mahmoud Abbas to his private home would impress him enough to change his policy? That wily fox took him for a ride. Gantz gave him what he wanted, and what did he get in return? More demands. No sooner Abbas was back in Ramallah, he unleashed a torrent of abuse, claiming that Israel is carrying out hideous policies of ethnic cleansing and organized terrorism against Palestinians. He talked of abhorrent Israeli occupation, repressive practices and persecution, theft of our land and stifling of our economy. All that after receiving concessions from guns. How many more times do we repeat the same mistake until Einstein's theory sinks in? Gantz's feeble excuse reads, quote, The need to maintain the security of Israeli citizens and the fight against Hamas are the main reasons, etc., etc., etc. Don't make me laugh, Mr. Gantz. Paying Abbas 500 million shekel, however it's dressed up, 
means money to pay the terrorists in Israeli prisons. Abbas has long suffered from hallucinations of a historic state of Palestine. That makes the supposedly confidence-building meeting even more irrelevant and shows up Defense Minister Gantz as totally unsuitable and unqualified to do that job. In other Western countries, following such a faux pas, the minister would immediately resign. Unfortunately, that is not the practice in Israel, where the personal ambition of ministers overrides any sense of accountability or even shame. It's interesting that so-called concerned voices criticize Chief Rabbi Lau for having paid a shiver call to the mourners of Rabbi Chaim Walder, who committed suicide while awaiting trial for alleged rape and sexual assault of minors. Whilst the allegations couldn't make it to court and have therefore not been proved, we of course abhor such actions and support wholeheartedly any legal proceedings against such perpetrators who deserve harsh punishment. But to criticize a shivakol, whoever the deceased was, is tantamount to denying the duty of a rabbi to care for the community. A shivakol is an essential part of Jewish funeral customs for both the mourner and their community. On the other hand, those concerned voices seem not to understand the implications of inviting a prominent enemy leader to the home of a minister. Imagine if the head of Germany's Jewish community had invited a Nazi minister following the Nuremberg laws. Oh yes, there's a clear correlation between those laws and attacking Jews in the street or not allowing them to live in their areas or paying murderers of Jews. The policies of successive Israeli governments do little to dispel the illusion of our Arab residents that they will in due course destroy the Jewish state and establish a Palestinian one. Our task is to begin today because it will take several generations to wash out the poison. Even if school books were replaced now, the teachers could still slant their lessons. The Nazi regime was defeated 77 years ago and we still experience considerable remnants of their philosophy today. In last week's program, I criticized the chief rabbi of South Africa, Warren Goldstein, for expecting diaspora Jews to be allowed into Israel despite closed borders, while other prospective tourists are kept out, even so, the tourist industry is suffering. Although he welcomes the relaxations since his earlier comment that now allows entry for tourists from his country, he cannot desist from continued criticism of Israel's COVID policy. In his latest outburst, he now requests that all Jews, regardless from which country they come, even those declared by Israel as red, be allowed entry subject to the same health and safety requirements as Israeli citizens who are returning home. 
whilst I respect the office held by Rabbi Goldstein, he would do better to minister to his own community and allow our government to do what it considers best for our citizens. Any criticism regarding COVID is the prerogative of Israelis. If the rabbi wishes to have influence on Israeli politics, he has the option of Aliyah. In a book titled Thou Shalt Innovate, its author Avi Yoris goes into great detail how Israeli ingenuity repairs the world, which happens to be the book's subtitle. We hear about modern drip irrigation or how the invention of the pill cam, a camera one swallows, helped millions around the globe by enabling to examine the small intestines that were hitherto a black hole and not accessible by colonoscopy. In fact, the book lists Israel's 15 greatest contributions which have changed the world for the better. Facts one never hears about in the international media. So, today I'm pleased to welcome Abi Yoris, the author, who is on the telephone with me from his residence in Washington. Hello and thank you for your time. Walter, it's such a pleasure to be on your show. I believe you were born in Israel and are very proud of this country. So how long have you lived in the U.S. and why? Are you part of the brain drain? I was actually born in the United States, but made Aliyah when I was just under four years old. The day we made Aliyah, we actually had the great privilege to meet Menachem Begin. The Aliyah coincided with the peace agreement that Menachem Begin signed with Anwar Sadat of Egypt. And my family left when I was a young teenager back to the United States. And I have since gone back and forth often. We have a home in Israel, spend as much time as possible in the country. You are a scholar of Islam. You've written several books and countless articles, mainly on illegitimate finance. But doesn't this book cover a subject that is different from your extensive academic qualifications. What made you write about Israeli innovations? My real change happened in the summer of 2014. We now spent summers with our children in Israel. And in the summer of 2014, I, like many others in Israel, experienced the wonders of the Iron Dome. We took great comfort in the Iron Dome as our family went in and out of bomb shelters that summer. Here you had ISIS taking over Iraq. Syria descended into civil war chaos. Hezbollah had a vice grip over Lebanon. And you had terrorists running around the Sinai Peninsula. And of course, you had Hamas digging tunnels and waging war with Israel. And I began to realize slowly but truly that Israel has more startups than Canada, India, Japan, and the United Kingdom combined. Israel has more companies listed on the NASDAQ than any other country outside of North America. And so on the one hand, I got pretty depressed seeing the region descend into war and chaos. On the other hand, here you have a country the size of New Jersey that is coming up with solutions to global challenges in the realms of water, medicine, agriculture. And I knew that was a story I had to tell. We're going into another break, but don't go away because you want to hear what he writes. It'll make you proud to be a Jew. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. 
This is Shai Bentico, and each week I'll be webcasting to you from Judea, origin of the word Jew, a people besieged and beleaguered in every generation. Nazi Germany is but a memory, but in its place the world invented the phantom Palestinians as this generation's internationally authorized Jew killers. Tune in for a different slant on life in Israel, Phantom Nation, every Monday. And now, here is Walter Bingham. Here you have a country the size of New Jersey that is coming up with solutions to global challenges in the realms of water, medicine, agriculture, and I knew that was a story I had to tell. As you pointed out, I did my graduate work in Islamic history and Arabic. I then lived in Egypt for many years and then wrote several books on terrorism finance, on radical Islam, on money laundering, on Iran's banking sector, and when I realized how much good Israeli technology was doing to improve the lives of billions of people around the world, I knew this was a story that I had to tell. Now, of course, there is no single narrative that fully defines the state of Israel. Israel, of course, is waging war on all fronts. Their conflict still continues with the Palestinians. I'm not here to suggest that my story is the one and only story that defines the state of Israel, but this is a story that I think more individuals ought to be aware of, and certainly this is an inspiring series of stories that bring light to the world. Here you have Israeli technology that is literally improving the lives of billions of people around the world. I must say it's a brilliant book, and in it you list just 15 of Israel's many innovations. Was it a difficult choice to make which to include and which to leave out? It was very challenging. So in order to get into the book, you need to really fit two criteria. One, to be highly innovative, and second, to improve the lives of many, many people. In the back of the book, because it was so challenging, I enlisted an additional 50 of Israel's greatest contributions to humanity. But in the book itself, as you point out, I outlined 15 stories that really bring light to the world that inspired me to really see the world in a different way. If Yeshua ben Nun, the successor of Moses, who led the Israelites into the Holy Land, had turned right instead of left, it would be Israel who had all the oil. But God had other plans, and so Israel has no sources of energy. No oil, no coal, just lots of sun and good innovative brains. It would, of course, take longer than the time I have available in this program to discuss in detail every one of the innovations you included in your book. But would you please just mention some of them briefly and why you have chosen them? Take, for example, Israel is the world's one and only water superpower, despite the fact that it is 60% desert. And when I say it is a water superpower, I mean that it is no longer dependent on the weather or on its neighbors for its water needs. And it did this leveraging innovations that were created in Israel and outside of Israel. So first, as you know, Walter, Israel has five desalination plants around the country that provide about 60% of Israel's potable water needs. Now that innovation was actually created in California in the mid-1960s, but it was perfected by the man who created it at Ben Gurion University. Now Israel could have kept this technology for themselves But instead, IBE, Israel's largest desalination company, has built the largest plant in the Western Hemisphere in California, the largest desalination plant in India and in China. You also write about a young physicist called Harry Tsui Tabor, who in the very early years of the state decided to harness the energy from the sun to heat water. That developed in today's Stutzemesh, 
narrow water pipes behind the polished glass plate facing the sun and an insulated water tank that we see on most roofs in Israel. You wrote that Tabor said at the time harnessing solar energy generally was considered an activity of cranks. Now tell me more about the impact of that particular innovation on Tikkun Olam. Harry Tabor made Aliyah in the late 1940s from the United Kingdom, and he actually became Israel's first chief scientist and appointed by Israel's first prime minister, Ben Gulion. And at the time, Israel faced bankruptcy, in large part because people wanted to take hot showers. Hot showers were taking a tremendous amount of electricity, so government authorities actually banned hot showers over the course of the day and only allowed its population to take hot showers at night. And so Harry T. Tavor looked around and figured out that the only way to actually power hot showers was the one and only sun. And at the time, there were no commercially viable solar panels. And so Harry created the world's first commercially viable solar panel, the basis of which today is all the world's solar power. Today, that innovation, the Duchemish, this is the solar water collector, which uses the sun to heat water, is improving the lives of billions of people around the world by providing hot water. His technology was also the basis for one of the larger solar electricity plants in California in the Western Hemisphere called Luz Technologies. As you know, most of Israeli households, in order to get hot water, are powered by this solar water collector known as the Duchemesh. Tell me about United Hatzalah. This is an organization that really revolutionized emergency medicine. If I were to have a heart attack in my home in Washington, D.C., on average, it would take about 20 minutes for an ambulance to arrive. And in a country that experiences war and terrorism on a regular basis, that was far too long. So my friend and colleague, Ellie Beer, created an organization called United Rescue, which trained 5,000 emergency responders, Christians, Muslims and Jews, he gave each and every one of them an application on their smartphone that acts like Uber, that calls the five nearest emergency responders to the scene of a medical emergency, and gave many of them an ambucycle, that is a hybrid between an ambulance and a motorcycle. It's like a small Vespa with a box on the back that brings emergency supplies. And now the national average in Israel to get an emergency responder to the scene of an emergency is three minutes anywhere in the country, and in every major metropolitan area, it is 90 seconds. Again, Israel could have kept this technology for itself, but United Rescue has now taken this technology and is now in some form or another used in 20 countries around the world, including in the United States. Jersey City recently became the first U.S. city to implement the United Rescue model right here in the States. One of the chapters is called Israel DNA. What do you mean by that? When I talk about the Israeli DNA, I'm really talking about the three driving factors that propel the innovative spirit of the country. First, you have your secular institutions like universities and the military, which really are the bedrock of the foundation of the country. And when you mix that with diversity, Israel is one of the most diverse places on the planet. You have Christians, you have Muslims, you have Jews, you have seculars. You have religious, you have Jews from all over the world. You combine diversity and secular values, and you add in the prophetic tradition, which the Jewish people have had for the last 3,000 years, you really have an 
unbelievable powerhouse that promotes technology. So when I talk about the prophetic tradition, for the last 3,000 years, the Jewish people have been repeating the concept of repairing the world, curing the sick, feeding the hungry, helping the needy. And you cannot repeat those ideas day after day, year after year, and for that not to have a deep impact on the cultural DNA of your people. When you combine the ideas of curing the sick, helping the needy, feeding the hungry, plus secular values and diversity, you see the state of Israel. And it's in part why I believe Israeli technology has a focus on making the world a better place. So when it comes to startups, and Israel has a lot to learn from the rest of the world when it comes to scaling up. But when it comes to the value proposition of making the world a better place, Israel really has improved the lives of many, many people around the world. That is the story that I wanted to tell in my book. This is one of the stories that I want Israel to be known by. When most people think about the state of Israel, you opened your show by pointing out that most people really think about war, terrorism, sand, so on and so forth. Very few people think about technology, and even a smaller number of people would associate this technology with improving the lives of so many people around the world. It is very interesting that many of our startup companies are watched by large conglomerates in the world. For instance, uh, just recently, Pepsi-Cola bought SodaStream, which is just a canister of CO2 in a plastic container where you can make your own soda drinks. And that was sold for $3.2 billion. So the world is looking at us. I mean, which do you consider to be the most outstanding innovations, those that have the greatest impact on the rest of the world? That's a very difficult question to ask. Take, for example, the drugs for multiple sclerosis. There are 2.5 million people around the world that are afflicted with multiple sclerosis. Over half of them are treated with drugs created in Israel, Rebus and Copaxone. For any of your listeners that have Parkinson's, they've likely been operated on using hardware and software created in Israel by a company called Alpha Omega, which is Israel's largest Arab high-tech company that's based in Nazareth. It has a presence in over 500 hospitals around the world and essentially serves as the GPS for the brain. When brain surgeons engage in their surgery, they have to get to the exact spot in the brain. And Alpha Omega has created that technology and is now being used around the world. Let's take, for example, drip irrigation. Drip irrigation was created in the mid-1960s, which essentially are these rubber tubes that emit micro amounts of water. You use less than a third of the water, and it doubles the yield of any crop that is being grown using drip irrigation. That technology today is used by over a billion farmers around the world. So these are rubber pipes that are laid along the ground with holes in them? Correct, and they emit slowly drips of water. And speaking of water, as we look into the future, water is going to become more and more scarce. Egypt, a country that is literally neighbors Israel, in seven years is going to run out of water. Iran, a country today that points as missiles towards Israel, in 20 years, over 50% of its population are going to become water refugees. I tend to think that in the coming decades, Egypt and Israel will become best of friends, and Iran, instead of pointing its missiles towards Israel, will be begging them for their water experts. And as I think about countries like Israel that are innovating solutions to global challenges, how can you be anything but hopeful and optimistic about Israel's future? 
Israel is solving some of the largest challenges afflicting humanity today. In your research, you will have spoken to many innovators and startup companies. What have you found to be special in the makeup of successful innovators? Is it genes or special character traits? Hi, I'm Rabbi David Aaron. The soul basics are the most profound, the most essential, and yet often the most neglected in our education. Join me for Soul Talk on Israel's News Talk Radio and discover the secrets to love, spiritual growth, and personal power. of New Jersey that is coming up with solutions to global challenges in the realms of water, medicine, agriculture, and I knew that was a story I had to tell. As you pointed out, I did my graduate work in Islamic history and Arabic. I then lived in Egypt for many years and then wrote several books on terrorism finance, on radical Islam, on money laundering, on Iran's banking sector, and when I realized how much good Israeli technology was doing to improve the lives of billions of people around the world, I knew this was a story that I had to tell. Now, of course, there is no single narrative that fully defines the state of Israel. Israel, of course, is waging war on all fronts. Their conflict still continues with the Palestinians. I'm not here to suggest that my story is the one and only story that defines the state of Israel, but this is a story that I think more individuals ought to be aware of, and certainly this is an inspiring series of stories that bring light to the world. Here you have Israeli technology that is literally improving the lives of billions of people around the world. I must say, it's a brilliant book, and in it you list just 15 of Israel's many innovations. Was it a difficult choice to make which to include and which to leave out? It was very challenging. So in order to get into the book, you need to really fit two criteria. One, to be highly innovative, and second, to improve the lives of many, many people. In the back of the book, because it was so challenging, I enlisted an additional 50 of Israel's greatest contributions to humanity. But in the book itself, as you point out, I outlined 15 stories that really bring light to the world, that inspired me to really see the world in a different way. If Yeshua ben Nun, the successor of Moses, who led the Israelites into the Holy Land, had turned right instead of left, it would be Israel who had all the oil. But God had other plans, and so Israel has no sources of energy. No oil, no coal, just lots of sun and good innovative brains. It would, of course, take longer than the time I have available in this program, to discuss in detail every one of the innovations you included in your book. But would you please just mention some of them briefly and why you have chosen them? Take, for example, Israel is the world's one and only water superpower, despite the fact that it is 60% desert. And when I say it is a water superpower, I mean that it is no longer dependent on the weather or on its neighbors for its water needs. And it did this leveraging innovations that were created in Israel and outside of Israel. So first, as you know, Walter, Israel has five desalination plants around the country. 
that provide about 60% of Israel's potable water needs. Now, that innovation was actually created in California in the mid-1960s, but it was perfected by the man who created it at Ben-Gurion University. Now, Israel could have kept this technology for themselves, but instead, IDE, Israel's largest desalination company, has built the largest plant in the Western Hemisphere in California, the largest desalination plant in India and in China. You also write about a young physicist called Harry Tsui Tabor, who in the very early years of the state decided to harness the energy from the sun to heat water. That developed in today's Stut Shemesh, narrow water pipes behind the polished glass plate facing the sun, and an insulated water tank that we see on most roofs in Israel. You wrote that Tabor said at the time harnessing solar energy generally was considered an activity of cranks. Now tell me more about the impact of that particular innovation on Tikkun Olam. Harry Tabor made Aliyah in the late 1940s from the United Kingdom, and he actually became Israel's first chief scientist and appointed by Israel's first prime minister, Ben Gurion. And at the time, Israel faced bankruptcy, in large part because people wanted to take hot showers. Hot showers were taking a tremendous amount of electricity, so government authorities actually banned hot showers over the course of the day and only allowed its population to take hot showers at night. And so Harry T. Tavor looked around and figured out that the only way to actually power hot showers was the one and only sun. And at the time, there were no commercially viable solar panels. And so Harry created the world's first commercially viable solar panel, the basis of which today is all the world's solar power. Today, that innovation, the Dut Shemesh, this is the solar water collector, which uses the sun to heat water, is improving the lives of billions of people around the world by providing hot water. His technology was also the basis for one of the larger solar electricity plants in California in the Western Hemisphere called Luz Technologies. As you know, most of Israeli households, in order to get hot water, are powered by this solar water collector known as the Duchemesh. Tell me about United Hatzalah. This is an organization that had really revolutionized emergency medicine. If I were to have a heart attack in my home in Washington, D.C., on average, it would take about 20 minutes for an ambulance to arrive. And in a country that experiences war and terrorism on a regular basis, that was far too long. So my friend and colleague, Ellie Beer, created an organization called United Rescue, which trained 5,000 emergency responders, Christians, Muslims, and Jews. He gave each and every one of them an application on their smartphone that acts like Uber, that calls the five nearest emergency responders to the scene of a medical emergency, and gave many of them an ambucycle, that is a hybrid between an ambulance and a motorcycle. It's like a small Vespa with a box on the back that brings emergency supplies. And now the national average in Israel to get an emergency responder to the scene of an emergency is three minutes anywhere in the country. And in every major metropolitan area, it is 90 seconds. Again, Israel could have kept this technology for itself, but United Rescue has now taken this technology and is now in some form or another used in 20 countries around the world including in the United States. Jersey City recently became the first U.S. city to implement the United Rescue model right here in the States. One of the chapters is called Israel DNA. What do you mean by that? When I talk about the Israeli DNA, 
I'm really talking about the three driving factors that propel the innovative spirit of the country. First, you have your secular institutions like universities and the military, which really are the bedrock of the foundation of the country. And when you mix that with diversity, Israel is one of the most diverse places on the planet. You have Christians, you have Muslims, you have Jews, you have seculars, you have religious, you have Jews from all over the world. You combine diversity and secular values, and you add in the prophetic tradition, which the Jewish people have had for the last 3,000 years, you really have an unbelievable powerhouse that promotes technology. So when I talk about the prophetic tradition, for the last 3,000 years, the Jewish people have been repeating the concept of repairing the world, curing the sick, feeding the hungry, helping the needy. And you cannot repeat those ideas day after day, year after year, and for that not to have a deep impact on the cultural DNA of your people. When you combine the ideas of curing the sick, helping the needy, feeding the hungry, plus secular values and diversity, you see the state of Israel. And it's in part why I believe Israeli technology has a focus on making the world a better place. So when it comes to startups, and Israel has a lot to learn from the rest of the world when it comes to scaling up. But when it comes to the value proposition of making the world a better place, Israel really has improved the lives of many, many people around the world. That is the story that I wanted to tell in my book. This is one of the stories that I want Israel to be known by. When most people think about the state of Israel, you opened your show by pointing out that most people really think about war, terrorism, sand, so on and so forth. Very few people think about technology, and even a smaller number of people would associate this technology with improving the lives of so many people around the world. It is very interesting that many of our startup companies are watched by large conglomerates in the world. For instance, uh, just recently, Pepsi-Cola bought SodaStream, which is just a canister of CO2 in a plastic container where you can make your own soda drinks. And that was sold for $3.2 billion. So the world is looking at us. I mean, which do you consider to be the most outstanding innovations, those that have the greatest impact on the rest of the world? That's a very difficult question to ask. Take, for example, the drugs for multiple sclerosis. There are 2.5 million people around the world that are afflicted with multiple sclerosis. Over half of them are treated with drugs created in Israel, Rebus and Copaxone. For any of your listeners that have Parkinson's, they've likely been operated on using hardware and software created in Israel by a company called Alpha Omega, which is Israel's largest Arab high-tech company that's based in Nazareth. It has a presence in over 500 hospitals around the world and essentially serves as the GPS for the brain. When brain surgeons engage in their surgery, they have to get to the exact spot in the brain. And Alpha Omega has created that technology and is now being used around the world. Let's take, for example, drip irrigation. Drip irrigation was created in the mid-1960s, which essentially are these rubber tubes that emit micro amounts of water. You use less than a third of the water, and it doubles the yield of any crop that is being grown using drip irrigation. That technology today is used by over a billion farmers around the world. So these are rubber pipes that are laid along the ground with holes in them? Correct, and they emit slowly drips of water. 
And speaking of water, as we look into the future, water is going to become more and more scarce. Egypt, a country that is literally neighbors Israel, in seven years is going to run out of water. Iran, a country today that points as missiles towards Israel, in 20 years, over 50% of its population are going to become water refugees. I tend to think that in the coming decades, Egypt and Israel will become best of friends, and Iran, instead of pointing its missiles towards Israel, will be begging them for their water experts. And as I think about countries like Israel that are innovating solutions to global challenges, how can you be anything but hopeful and optimistic about Israel's future? Israel is solving some of the largest challenges afflicting humanity today. In your research, you will have spoken to many innovators and startup companies. What have you found to be special in the makeup of successful innovators? Is it genes or special character traits? I'll tell you a story. When my son was almost five years old, I came home and I could tell that something was not quite right. And when I asked, my wife told me that he had told the homeless person that he was a very bad man. I told my child that we were going in a mission. We got about halfway down the block. I asked my child, why did he tell that homeless person that he was a bad man? And he said he didn't know. But we only have five rules in the Yorsh home. And so I asked my son, what are the five rules that we have? And he very quickly told me, rule number one, be a mensch, not a vildechaya. And for you non-speakers of Yiddish, that literally means be a good person, not a wild animal. And even five-year-olds know the difference. Rule number two, do your part to make the world a better place. Rule number three, never, ever give up. Rule number four, try your hardest. And rule number five, try and have a good time. We then walked and found that homeless person. And I asked my son if he would be willing to look him in the eye, say, God bless you and keep you safe, shake his hands, and give him a couple bucks. And he agreed. He said, Daba, that is doing tzedakah. And I, I thought that was the right way to go. And so did he. And he did that. That homeless person looked at my son, and my son looked at the homeless person, and then he hugged my child. You could tell this was the first human interaction that this individual had had in a very, very long time. We walked away, and then I asked my son, what just happened? And he looked at me and he said, Baba, I made the world a better place, and it feels good. When I think about that story, and I think about the state of Israel, we are taught that the world stands on three things, Torah, Avodah and Milut Hasadim, Torah, which I equate to values. Values are a universal human yearning. The Jewish people do not have the intellectual property locked down on values, but we certainly have been engaging in values for a very, very long time. Avodah, hard work. Look at what Israel has managed to accomplish over the course of the last 70 years. It's nothing short of a miracle. And Milut Hasadim, acts of kindness. When I think about my son's story, and I think about Torah, Avodah, and Gerut Hasadim, I know there's nothing that you cannot accomplish with values, hard work, and acts of charity. And when I look at Israeli technology and the impact that it's having in the world today, it really should serve as an inspiration to all of us. You asked what drives the innovators, what makes them special? It's this idea of being a mensch, not a Bildachaya, of doing their part to make the world a better place never ever giving up, trying their hardest, and trying to have a good time. We must look to ourselves. What can each of us do to make the world a better place? So, in short, as Jews, we have the obligation of tikkun olam in the wider sense of helping to improve the living standards of everybody, 
and our innovations are being used and employed all over the world, in particular in the underdeveloped world, for instance, Africa, where we're making very noticeable impact. But what tangible benefits does Israel derive other than the commercial ones? Israel is doing right because that is what our prophets have been teaching us for thousands of years. There was a medical a few years back. The source of greatest happiness happens in the human brain when we do charity. We are putting these innovations out to the world not only for the commercial gain. Certainly, there's nothing wrong with making money. But ultimately, Israel represents the idea that there is no greater benefit than doing right and doing good. And that is the story by which I hope more people will come to understand the state of Israel. We're running short of time, but I have to ask you this. The very people who are advocating BDS are using Israeli technology to disseminate their anti-Israel message. And not only that, but are using other Israeli inventions for their benefit. It's generally accepted that in the past, the effect of the Israeli political PR machine has lagged behind that of our enemies. So in the field of innovations, what should Israel do to publicize more widely that many of the modern amenities that benefit humanity originate in Israel, a fact that isn't known by most of the beneficiaries, some of whom boycott Israeli oranges, but use Israeli drugs and intel chips. Israel created drip irrigation. It created cherry tomatoes. If you're using voicemail, that was created in Israel. If you're using an Intel microchip, is used was created in Israel. And the list goes on and on. Drugs and water and medicine and science. Many, many innovations have come from Israel. Each of us has the obligation to spread far and wide the idea that Israel has created so many technologies that are value positive. Now sum up in one short sentence. There's no single narrative that fully defines the state of Israel, but there is no denying that Israel has extraordinary innovators that are bound together not by religion, money, or stature, but rather a desire to save lives and make the world a better place. And here we end. Thou Shalt Innovate is published by and available from Geffen Publishing House in Jerusalem and from all good book outlets. Avi Yorish, it's been a pleasure to have you on the program. Thank you for having me. I look forward to coming back. Before I get to the interview about Eichmann, here is one more important point. At the Conference of Israel's Travel Industry, the Israel manager of Expedia.com observed that we are reactive and explain our point of view after an event or make excuses when it's too late. In the travel industry sense, that means we would like more tourists, but we fail miserably to sell what Israel can offer. We need to be proactive. And now to the story of the capture of Eichmann. There have been some films made about the subject. They have lots of artistic license. But on this program, you will hear the real account of his capture from the man who did it. SS Colonel Adolf Eichmann was the organizer of the final solution of the Jewish question which ended with a murder of six million. After the war, with the aid of the International Red Cross, he obtained a fraudulent travel document in the name of Ricardo Clement, technician, aptly described, with which he boarded a ship 
heading for Argentina on July 14, 1950. Eichmann lived there under this false identity and worked for Mercedes-Benz until he was kidnapped by Mossad, taken to Israel and brought before a specially convened civilian court. Found guilty of 15 charges, including war crimes and crimes against humanity, he was executed by hanging in 1962 and is the only person to have been executed in Israel on conviction by a civilian court. Former Arutz Sheva show host Tovia Singer interviewed Peter Malkin, who describes in great detail how he and the group he led captured Eichmann. This is the edited interview. Been going on already after the war, 1945, ordered to capture Eichmann. I took about 15 years later that we located him, and that was really by accident. Like many big things happened by accident. It was a trial on Nuremberg, and some man called Hermann heard the name Eichmann. The man is not on the trial. He disappeared. So he remembered that his daughter is dating a man, a young man called Eichmann. And he gave this message to a man called Fritz Bauer, a prosecutor in Hessen, and he brought it over to Ben-Gurion and Israel, and we sent an agent, and he came to conclusions, not the man. Only one and a half years later, Ben-Gurion and Israel decided to create a team that will go and find out if he's the man or not. If he's the man, we bring him over to Jerusalem to stand trial. It was not an act of revenge, not an act of killing somebody. It was an act of justice and moral to bring the, over the man that was only 15 years after the war. They can tell the story for the youth generation to understand what happened. And then we created a team to go there. You were in the Mossad for 27 years. You were in Israel's Secret Service. Right. And you first were an agent, and later you were the chief of operations. You've accomplished many things, including finding out the Soviet spy who had penetrated the highest levels of Israeli government. Israel was the man who was been going on that I captured him, my team. You don't do nothing by yourself. It's always a right. team who helps you. But I guided right. him to capture him. He was my professor, by the way. This is all very personal for you, I would imagine, because... You lost members of your own family in the Holocaust. So for you, Eichmann must have been the most extraordinary job that you were given in the Mossad. I lost my sister and three children, and I lost about 150 of my family, and nobody stayed alive there. All were murdered, and Eichmann was the one who guided this murder. So for sure it was personal. But many people ask me, do you want to kill him? Do you want to strangle him and all this? It is not fear, it is responsibility. Because once his new hand, and he will escape, I couldn't live later to say, the man who killed so many people, millions of people, six million of Jews, one half million of children, and also non-Jews. I tried to capture him, I wouldn't succeed. I couldn't be, not in Israel, and not in any place, and I couldn't stand with myself this chance I didn't execute. Here he describes the evening of May 11th, 1960, when, knowing where he lived and also his alias, the team went into action. exciting evening, the, the, the night of the capture, after we've been there about four months following him, trying to find his location, and what amazed me, that he was a 
family man. He had a boy called Hassi of six years old. And after all this, it came the night of 11th of May, 1968, 8.20 in the evening. I remember it because he was late 20 minutes. And well, we've been very nervous about it. And he came. And my problem was to capture him. Oh, no, the two things. It has to be very speedy, about nine seconds, that nobody will see. Because he lived exactly opposite the police station. And also, his son was waiting for him every evening. So I have to put the car in a way that the police wouldn't see and his son wouldn't see. So it has to be so quickly that people wouldn't doubt what it was if it was an aggressive act. So the second thing is, like every act, and that's the most important thing for everybody, the decision to act or not to act. And that was the most important. I couldn't say I'm going to do it because it depends on the area, it depends on the police, depends on the people who are going around. And only in the last minute I have to say yes or no. You know what? Concentrate. The concentration is the most important thing. Because at that time I thought about my mother, what she would say, what in Israel will happen when Eichmann will be brought and suddenly I say, shut up, close yourself and concentrate. When I walked there, in the moment I knew only one sentence, uno momentito, senor. When I say uno momentito to him, he already retreated, I captured him. We fell a little bit. I took him on my shoulder. Somebody came. He put him in the car. We are on the way. You are listening to Peter Malkin, the former Mossad agent who physically captured Adolf Eichmann. I remember at that day I went to buy gloves. And these gloves were somebody gave a million dollars for the gloves to be in the museum. And another 68,000 we gave it to Chernobyl children. I said, I have to put some gloves on my hand because I couldn't believe that I will hold this mouth that gave all this to kill so many people with my bare hand. So I went to buy the gloves. And I remember when I hold his mouth, I said to myself, really, that was the first time that changed my life. I said, what makes a man like me and you to do all these atrocities? My co-author was also the right monster, and I said, no, don't say monster, say a human being. And that is the problem, as always. The human being, how he became, that he can make all the atrocities. The human being that looks like me, looks like you, looks innocent, loves his family, and still kills others with no mercy. He was literally in your hands. Did he struggle did he immediately comply with your orders to remain silent? Your practice capturing him over and over again, did it go well? You're talking to professionals. What do you mean you struck? I have in my hands one. I just surprised them. First, I knew I'm going to capture. He didn't know that I'm going to capture. I knew how. I knew when. I knew everything that he didn't know. You take somebody by surprise. And I have captured so many people, even my family. Everybody, and I practiced it again and again. It was 20 seconds later because he moved a little bit. And these 20 seconds has to be perfect that nobody, no the police, nobody will see, no his son. And we'll go over. The fear was when we hold him, we didn't know how we will transfer him later. So it was very important that he will be transferred to his place, to the villa where he's going to stay that nobody will be a link or knowledge that he is there because the police will look after him, the Nazis will look after him, and his children will look for him. That was important that he will be clandestine held 
Till we have a chance to bring him over, we didn't know how to bring him, but it was important, and the order was by Ben Gurion and Israel to capture him and then to see how we're going to transfer him. They have to disguise him. You had him in a hidden place ten to be able to write ten days. Did you ever ask him, why did you do it? It was not my task. I had to capture him. That was my task. Capture him and bring him over. But like uh, every Jew, we want to do a little bit more. When I held his mouth, I said, I have to know why. Why did he do it to the children of my sister? Why did he do it to so many people that I knew? I have to ask him this question. You know, we are not Nazis. We are not German officers that we can't ask questions. I didn't even thought about if I can ask or not. I decided I'm going to ask him. So these 10 days were the most important thing in my whole book. He's been talking to him because that was the first day that, that somebody talked to him. And the Israeli talked to him for sure. He never dreamt it's going to be like this. And after two days, he asked me, are you the man who captured me? I said, how do you know? He said, I never forget the uno moment Peter senor. So I said to him, yes, I'm the man. And that gave me the opportunity to ask him. And I said to him, I want to ask you a question about your small boy hat. Hasi was a small son, about five, six years, blonde, blue eyes. He said to me, did you kill him? I said, why should we kill him? He couldn't believe, like revenge, we wouldn't kill his family and him. He even didn't thought about it. Our aim was only to bring him over to Israel to stand trial in Jerusalem. That was our aim. And I said, look, we didn't touch your son. So let me ask you the question. What is the question? And I said, how is it that your small boy has six years old, blonde, blue eyes, exactly like the son of my sister, Yitzhakale. They could be even brothers. How is it that your son is alive? Every day when you come home, he's waiting for you. And I saw him now waiting when we captured you. And the son of my sister, Yitzhakale, the six years old, is dead. He listened to it in a minute, and then he said, wasn't he Jewish? I said, yes, for sure he was Jewish. And he said, so what could I do? That was my orders, you know. I'm uh, just a soldier like you. You, a soldier, come to capture me. You see, we all both soldiers. I said, don't put me in your group. I said, I'm not a soldier. I came not for revenge. What kind of a chance did you give them? And that's the moment that always made me crazy that I think about my sister standing near the gas chambers with three small children holding their hand, and they hold her. And what did she say to them? When she went in, she knew that the last moment they will never live again. And you're telling me now, Eichmann, that what could I do? You just could do not to do it. What chance did you give them? No chance. We gave you all the chances. We are not going to kill you. We didn't touch your family. We're going to bring you over to stand fire at our new generation. And the people who came out only 15 years later, the young people who came out from Auschwitz or from other places to tell what you have done and what happened, that will never happen again. That the new generation will know how to protect themselves like people like you and Germans and others and all these people who hate so much Israel and the Jews. What language were you speaking in? I haven't Deutsch gesprochen. So I spoke to him German, I speak seven languages, so that's one of my languages that I speak. And I gave also a lecture to 5,000 young Germans, that 10 of them became Jewish. 
after 10 days, I said to myself, it's not 10 days, it's 10 years. I couldn't bear it. I said, another day, I choose myself. It's like to talk to a man that the glass is between me and him. I don't understand him, he doesn't understand me. You know, he spoke a little bit Hebrew, and what he said to me, you know a sentence that I'm sure you have to know. And he said, to my Israel, at an island. That was the moment when I remembered my family tradition and my father. We wouldn't have to transfer him to Israel. It was terrible that he said his word, the most sacred word for the Jews. To, to kill more and more and more. You're saying that Adolf Eichmann knew the Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem Achad? Yes. He didn't say Elokeinu, he said Elokeinu. And he learned by a rabbi some Hebrew. And he was also in Israel in 36. And the English didn't give him money. He was only a Haifa. And he was there to study the mentality of his victims. You know, the Germans, when they take something to do, they do it perfectly. This is how they got him out of Argentina. Israel, it was his idea that it was 150 years of the independence of South America and also Argentina. When there was a carnival and all this and that. And he decided that we'll bring an airplane over to celebrate this occasion. And Abba Ibn was at that time the foreign minister. And he was told to go there and to do it with a team. And he really was a bait. He didn't know that he is going to stay and, and Eichmann will go with the airplane and he will stay there in Argentina. When I heard about it, I said, bring me the uniform. I gave the size and everything and the hat. And I wanted to disguise him as a steward of Elal. And when the airplane came, I got his uniform. I dressed him to the uniform. I put on the hat, not Swastika, but the Star of David. And he looked in the mirror and he said, oh, I like this uniform, believe me, I like it. And then there were six people there, one of them was the doctor, had to give him an injection, but not to make him fall asleep, but only as drunk, like one of us, like we all were, you know, because of the independence, drinking wine, and we gave the guard of the airport to drink and all this. So that's the way we put him between us, between two people, and went over the borders of the airport, and we went into El Al. I didn't go because I stayed behind, because as always, you know, that after every party, somebody has to clean the dishes, right? Like the cars, and houses, and so on. So I stayed another month in South America. They said to me that after 10 days, they would announce it, that he was captured, because as long as I'm there, they wouldn't announce it. But you know the Jews in Israel, in the same day, Already all the newspapers around the world said that Eichmann was caught. It was told all over. There was no one smallest newspaper around. I remember that at that time I went to eat breakfast and I met a woman there that I knew a long time. She said, you know, they captured Eichmann. And she was not Jewish. She said, who's Eichmann? All the newspapers said it. And suddenly she said, maybe you are the one. I said, for sure. I just came back from the kidnapping. <laughs> So then he was brought over, and you know the story, but maybe it's important two things to tell. One was, we have to sign him on a paper that he willingly wants to go to Jerusalem. And he didn't want to stay until I became a little bit near to him and convinced him that it's about time that he will sign this paper because he will stand there, tell the people what he has done, because he was not the only one who created the Reich. And he accepted the sign, but he asked me one day that I will visit him in Jerusalem. 
And I remember one year later, I was standing in Jerusalem, and I didn't know that that fire is there in the Chadaam. It was the, the house there, and I see standing a row, and I said to the guy, what, 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 are, you, what are you getting here? He said, no, that fire of Eichmann. I said, oh, that's a chance that I will fulfill my promise. I went in there, I was standing, and he was in the glass booth, and I looked at him, and suddenly when his eyes saw me, my God, he stopped the, the interrogation, he didn't want to answer, and Hausner at that time, the prosecutor said, answer the questions. I said, oh my God, I'm interrupting the whole thing. So I went out, but before I left the place, you know, the court, I looked around, the only one I knew there was Eichmann, and the whole court of hundreds of people. Now, I believe one thing, anybody who wants to kill a Jew has to be killed before he does it. There's no question about it. I don't think it has to be other way. A murderer has to be killed before they kill us. And I have no question about it and no regret about it. I just regret one thing, that we as human beings, as neighbors, couldn't live together and organize the things and let the children of the future live in peace. I was only brought to the team to capture Eichmann. The other rest of my life I did against Russian spies. You know, I found the 150 Nazi scientists, a lot of anti-terror acts I did. Because a good agent is not to kill. A good agency is to warn before the happening and to bring the information before it happens and not after. And I did the best I can to save life and not to kill somebody. A good agent works through his brain. Your brain is your weapon. Truly a hero. I did what I have to do. For me, the hero is the man who does the best he can for his country and for humanity. That was the story of one of Israel's most successful Mossad agents. But it was only a taster. His book, co-written with Harry Stein, is called Eichmann in My Hands and is available from all good booksellers and Amazon.com. Could we do an operation like this today? I don't think so. The ridiculous constraints of political correctness are preventing much of the policing of terrorism. Peter Malkin died on the 1st of March 2005 and may his soul be elevated. And with that eyewitness account, I end this week's program. If you've got any comment, suggestions or even criticism, please write to me to walter at israelnewstalkradio.com where you will always get my personal reply. This is Walter Bingham wishing you a pleasant week. Goodbye. Israel News Talk Radio's chat room. Just click the orange button at the top of the IsraelNewsTalkRadio.home page, log in as yourself or an anonymous guest, and join in on the fun. You'll meet other listeners from all over the world who listen to Israel News Talk Radio, and you can make new friends. Israel News Talk Radio's chat room. It's the closest you can get to being in the studio with us. We love listening to Israel News Talk Radio. Where can you get the inside news on Israel? At Israel News Talk Radio, we're dedicated to sharing Israel's inside story with the world by providing our listeners with news on Israeli politics, current affairs, and Israeli Jewish culture. 
The Israel News Talk Radio homepage also provides you, the listener, with useful information at your fingertips. With scrolling news headlines, weather, currency exchange, Shabbat candle lighting times, and so much more. Our radio programming is always accessible and on demand. We operate absolutely free of charge for everyone, everywhere. If you love what we do, partner with us now by becoming an Israel News Talk Radio supporter. With your support, you'll be inscribed on our Israel News Talk Radio Wall of Fame. There's nothing like us in the world. Be part of something great. Israel News Talk Radio. Straight talk from Israel. If you love Israel News Talk Radio, then you'll love our Facebook page. We keep you up to date on what's happening in Israel, plus little surprise treasures that we don't share on the radio. Go now to follow us on Facebook. Just look for the Israel News Talk Radio Facebook page. And don't forget to subscribe and follow us by clicking on the like button. We post great stuff there that you'll want to share. Israel News Talk Radio on Facebook and Israel News Radio on Twitter. News, opinion, and more. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. 